Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Bear with me, be patient this morning as my pages are blown, my notes are blown, and everything's just blown around up here. But we're continuing in our series titled Saints in Society. And the reason why it's titled Saints in Society is because we understand that saints is actually an identity that is given to us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Saint or sainthood is not something we work toward achieving. It's actually something that we are given upon faith. It's not something we merit through our performance. It's not something we arrive at. It's something we are given at the moment we put our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. We are set apart. We are holy. That's what saint means. What what we're looking at in this series is what it looked what it looked like for a saint to live in society of Corinth. And as a city that was really secular, there was a ton of influence coming in on on, uh, the way that saints were supposed to live. What we're also looking at is what it looks like for saints to live in the 21st century here in the Pacific Northwest. Understanding as well, there's a ton of influence that comes in from society. In chapters 8, 9, and 10, we're looking at uh, specifically what it is for the saints to be free, for the saints' freedom, and to live out of that freedom, out of our new identity, who we are in Jesus in society. We're also looking at, though, what is the antithesis of being a, uh, a saint, uh, of the opposite of someone who is free, and, and that sort of pressure that comes in from society uh, telling us this is what freedom is, trying to redefine freedom. We looked at that last week. This week we'll continue on with chapter 10. And our main point for today is this, is the saints are called to remember, the saints are called to trust, and the saints are called to live. So the main point is the saints are called to remember, to trust, and to live. There, there are three kind of big stories that I remember throughout my life that, that have really shaped me. And, and I, I remember, uh, even as we went on a backpacking trip this last week, one of those stories is that uh, I was probably around 18 or 19 years old, and I was hiking with a few of my buddies in the woods. And my friends and I have a habit of turning everything we do into a competition. I, and I like assure you it's not healthy at all. But uh, the competition was... The first person jumped over the creek, and then the second person said, I can do a 360 over the creek. And then I went last and was confident that I could do a 720 over the creek. And so I I jumped over the creek, barely cleared the creek, did not do a 720, barely did a 360, and then I fell flat on my back, like seven or eight feet into the creek, and just laid there in just muddy water for a moment. From that moment on, I've never tried to jump over a creek or spin over a creek or do anything cool or flashy over a creek. Fast forward a couple years, and I love to push down snags in the woods. I know they call them like widow makers, but, but just big snags. I like to get them rocking and push them down. One time I was out hunting with some friends, and I decided to do this. Uh, little did I know that while I was shaking this tree that an eight-foot piece roughly fell off the top, spiraled down, and hit right on the top of my head. And, and the piece of wood snapped in half and it knocked me out unconscious. I came to listening to like probably <laughs> three of my friends laughing and only one of them concerned. But one of them said, you were doing like the fish on the ground. And, and, and as I came to them, I'm like, my goodness, like what happened? They're like a piece fell off and just completely just broke over your head. From that moment on, our family went even on a backpacking trip this last week and I don't go up and shake pieces of wood and rattle them to try to get them to fall or break or anything like that. Another thing which you guys, if you've been with our church for even less than a year or this last year, is that I attempted a backflip at my daughter's gymnastics recital, because uh, that's what you do when you're pushing 40. And I went out on the mat, I tried to do a backflip, <laughs> I made it halfway around, 
And by God's grace, I'm not paralyzed, but I just remember being mortified. Not even so much that I didn't do the backflip, but my just face was cut up from my, <laughs> from my backwards hat. Uh, and, and so I had to walk out in front of a bunch of parents, people, and kids just, just, just absolutely mad at and then show up to church to preach Sunday with just my face pretty mangled. So those of you guys that remember that. But guess what I don't, I don't do anymore? I don't do backflips at all. I don't do backflips on the trampoline. I don't do backflips at all because I remember these things that stand out to me in my memory. And through remembering those things, I remember what the outcome was. What actually Paul is doing at the beginning of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 here, there's no way that I can unpack the just robust amount of theology that's in the first part of this chapter. But what Paul is calling the Corinthians do, uh, to do is actually to remember and to learn. And in this case, he's not calling them to remember and learn from their own mistakes. He's actually calling them to remember and learn from previous generations, from their ancestors. And so that's where we pick up today. He, he's saying, hey, I've seen what you guys are doing. This is nothing new. This is nothing creative. You guys aren't original. I've seen you. Uh, uh, I've seen this happen before. In fact, this has gone on for thousands of years. We can trace this back all the way through uh, through Israel's ancestry, which you guys are now a part of. And you can see these are the same things that has happened. This is where this sort of behavior and this is sort of uh, th this is where the sort of belief is going to lead you. So that's where we pick up today in First Corinthians chapter ten, verse one. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things took place as, as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as, as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time to gather. We thank you for the freedom that we can gather, that we can proclaim and preach your word. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. Father, we thank you that your word collectively from beginning to end tells the story of what you've done and the way that you've acted in humanity to save and rescue and redeem us. Father, it tells a story of time and time again we fall away and we believe lies. Father, we we run after other things, but what we are told time and time again is that we are saved by your grace, that you are faithful, that you run after us, and that you've ultimately provided all that's needed for us to be rescued, redeemed, and restored to you in your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that your spirit would remind us of that this morning. We need to be remembered. Father, I pray that you would increase our trust and faith and confidence, not in and of ourselves, but in you and in what your son has done. And we pray that through the empowerment of your spirit that we would live freely into who we are now in Jesus. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Chapter, chapter 10, verse 1, Paul starts off like this. I do not want you to be aware, brothers, that our fathers were all under this, uh, the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. 
And that's where Paul starts off at. This seems like just a complete and total odd introduction to this chapter. But what Paul is actually doing, which he's done time and time again, he just uses different language to do it, is he's calling them to remember who they are. He started off the letter as saints. That means set apart or holy one. Here, he's actually calling them to remember who you are. It's, it's no longer my father as a Jew to the nation of Israel. It's actually our father that we are now all a part of this identity in Jesus. And just so you guys know, I, I can preach through kids. We welcome kids, welcome family. It's a family service. I won't belabor this for a couple hours, so we, we will make it through this. So welcome to chaos. <clears throat> what, what he's doing is saying these are, these are now our fathers. That in, this, in the way that God had a covenant people, now we are all a part of that covenant. That's what Galatians 3, 26 through 29 tells us, is that now we are heirs of the promise, of the, the offspring of Abraham. That's who we are now. And so that's what he's trying to tell them. He's trying to call them back constantly to saying, this is who we are. We are, we, 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 we are now, we are in Christ. The church is in Christ. That's who we are. And in the same way Israel shared in this story, which is the pinnacle of the Old Testament, that's what the Exodus account is. It, it, it's like the pinnacle and the climax of redemption in the Old Testament. That's, that's what's going on. Paul is taking them back to a story several thousand years ago and saying, hey, do you remember this? Remember what God did here with the nation of Israel? He baptized them. How? Under the cloud and in the sea. So this is, this is a theophanic thing that's happening here. And what I mean by that is God is appearing to uh, the, uh, the nation of Israel in a cloud. And then what God is doing is working in the supernatural to deliver the people, his nation and his covenant people. And so the, the, the easiest way to, to understand this is this, is that the nation of Israel were held captive by the Egyptians for hundreds of years. And, and, and they started to cry out to God for redemption and for freedom and for deliverance. And so what happened is that God provided that. He provided a man named Moses, another man named Aaron who accompanied him. But ultimately what God did is worked miracles to deliver them through the Red Sea. And, and that's, that's what, what, what Paul is drawing them into. If, if you look back at the story, this is an amazing story. I would encourage you guys to, to go back and read it. But when, when, when you get to this in Exodus 14, what you will see and understand is this is the nation of Israel has just been delivered from the slavery and the oppression of the, um, of the Egyptians. And so now they've been delivered, now they've been taken out, but now they, they find themselves face head on with the sea. So the sea is right in front of them, and, and they had just plundered the Egyptians. So they have all their gold and all their silver, and, and, and here they are thinking, we're good to go. We got away from this oppression, but now there's a sea in front of us. And as they look back over the shoulder and turn around, the entire force of the military of the Egyptian army is coming at them, not to have a conversation with them, but to absolutely destroy them. And so here they are thinking we're saved, we're free uh, from the oppression, but now they have the impossible. They have a sea in front of them that they can't do anything about and an army coming to destroy them and get back all the stuff that they've just plundered. And so they start crying out to Moses. And then we get to this beautiful verse in Exodus 14, 14, if you wanna go there later, but basically he says this, just be silent. Just be quiet. This is not our fight. This is the Lord's, and he's going to fight it for us. And so what seems to be impossible, there's no way out. There's no way of escape. Let's just trust God because he's the one uh, who, who's, who's going to provide redemption again. He's the one who's going to fight this battle for us, and he's the one that's going to provide a way of escape. And so what happens is this, is Moses takes his wooden staff, and, and in a sense, he puts it in the sea and says, by this staff, deliver your people. 
by this staff as I place it in the sea, deliver your people. And so the waters part and the people walk through. Notice this. God did not give the Israelites the Ten Commandments and say, if you obey these and you obey these well, and, and you do all of them, then I will deliver you out of this slavery and out of the oppression. What he actually does is fully and freely delivers them, takes them out of Egypt, takes them across the Red Sea, and then later they go to Sinai, where then he gives them the law and he gives them the commandments. So after he has a redeemed, set free, covenant people only by grace, then he gives them the law after that. And so as, as Moses holds his wooden staff in the water, the waters part and the nation of Israel walks through and they are brought through out of this exodus into redemption, into freedom, out of slavery, and they become God's covenant people. And this is where Paul is taking them. He's like, you need to remember this story. You need to reflect on the story. You need to actually believe the story and see what happened here. And then after Israel went through this, then they wandered in the wilderness and they continued to grumble. They continued to plain. What, uh, what were they complaining about? We don't like the food out here. So God provides manna, a, a, a supernatural food for them. And he also provides water for them out of a rock. But what he also provides, which this text doesn't tell us, is he also, they wanted some protein, right? So he provides quail for them, okay? So God is constantly and continually providing for them. And that's where, Mos or that's where Paul starts us off. And that's where we're going to start off today. It's not going to be Here's what we do, and the gospel comes to the end. Paul is taking them at the beginning of this chapter right to the gospel and saying, this is what happened to the nation of Israel. This is ultimately pointing to this, that later on, thousands of years later, another man would come along. And, and, and what he would also do is take a wooden staff, and he would say, by this wooden staff, save, redeem, and deliver your people. That staff was a cross, and that person was Jesus Christ. And we understand this, that he lived the perfect life. He didn't say, meet the requirements of God, and then I'll come to earth, and if you act good enough, then I'll rescue you. He came to the cross. He bore the wrath of a righteous, holy God to redeem and reconcile and restore his people by and through a wooden staff that we know and recognize as the cross of Jesus Christ. So that's what this story is, is pointing to. He's taking them back to the pinnacle of the Old Testament saying, ultimately, this story points to a greater exodus, to a greater story of redemption, to a greater freedom that we now have in Christ. We are baptized as believers in Jesus Christ who put our trust and faith in him. As they were baptized through the water and brought to the other side in the Old Testament, water resembles wrath. They were spared from the wrath because the wooden staff held back the waters of God. We are spared from the wrath of God because the cross held, uh, holds it back, but ultimately because Christ absorbs it. And so in the same way that he's calling them to remember that, he said they were baptized, what, into Moses through the water. We are baptized into Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection makes us a new people. What does it make us? Saints set apart and holy. That's who we are. That's who he's calling them to remember at the beginning of this chapter. Then look at what he's saying, because now it gets interesting. Verse 3, And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. Notice the alls here. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Look at verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Here's what we need to see. All of them, all of the nation of Israel, walked through the sea on dry ground. When they got in the wilderness, they were all fed the manna, and they were all fed the rock. And ultimately, this is another thing that points us to Christ in the Old Testament, is that the rock was struck that we know, and from it flowed living water. Christ was struck on the cross, and from him flows living water. And, and, and so what we have here is we have this entire nation reaping the benefits of what God has done by his grace. But what we have here is also Paul telling us that with them God is not pleased. I grew up in Roseburg, 
which is about an hour south of here. And there's, in a sense, two highways that get you to the coast from there. There's Highway 138 and Highway 42. Highway 42 is very, very windy. And so when my dad would travel to the coast, he would normally take the highway through Sutherland, which is 138, because it was more of a, uh, more of a straight road. Both of these roads, both of these highways get you to Highway uh, uh, 101 and they get you to the coast. And, and I don't want to parallel the coast with hell or anything like that. So just hang in with me during this, uh, during this story. But you can leave Roseburg and take either one of these highways and still arrive at the same location. And here's the reality, is in life, you can follow one of two roads in a sense, is you can follow the straight and narrow, which means you can go to church, you can sing songs, you can even take communion, which is now the celebration of Christ's redemption he's provided for us. You can sit, you can stand, you can do all these things. You can listen to K-Love Radio. You can, you can do all the right things. You can make sure you don't swear, don't watch any bad movies, all these things. But at the end of the day, if, if that is where you put your trust, your faith, and your confidence, that is just a straight road that is still away from Christ. Or there's the windy road, and that is the road that is just back and forth, it's up and down, it's everywhere, where, where, where you want all the pleasures of the world. And that is still a road away from Christ. The, the straight and narrow road says that I like to spend my time focusing on the way I live, and my heart is more close to the life I live than it is to the, heart, or, or to the life that Christ lived on my behalf. And then to the other person who's the more prodigal in spirit, they go everywhere and say, I don't believe that Christ can be uh, enough pleasure and enough satisfaction for me. And so I go everywhere else in life seeking this satisfaction that the world has to offer. And so, but both can play the part. Both, both can come to church, both can do everything, both can do all this. But at the end of the day, what's really being communicated is that I don't actually love, want, or desire Jesus. I love the life I live and put my confidence there, the self-righteous, or I love everything else in the world and put my confidence there. And so Paul says, look, all these people, the nation of Israel, they all passed through the waters. They were all brought through. They all ate the bread. They all drank the drink. This should sober us for a moment because that's what Paul's trying to do. But he's like, nevertheless, God was not pleased with many of them. And if you know the story well, Caleb and Joshua are the only ones that weren't put to death. So is a lot of them. This has to remind us of Matthew 7, the text where, where, where it says, I never knew you. Because in that text, what happens? It's the righteous that are sitting before God in heaven. And what are they doing? They're saying this, Lord, did, did we not pray? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do this? Did we not do this? Did we not do this? And, and they present their entire list before God. And God says what? Depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because at the end of the day, their trust and their confidence was in everything that they had been doing for God, not what Christ had done for God in our place. And in the same way he's saying, you can play the role. You can play the part. You can do all these things. But nevertheless, God knows the heart. And what pleases God is a, a heart of faith and trust and confidence in him, in his grace, and in the work that his son has did in our place. If you don't believe this, please, sometime in, in your own reading, go read Psalm 78. It's a beautiful psalm, but you can see what actually makes God grumpy in the psalm. It's people complaining, but ultimately in verses 21 and 32, you can see that the thing that makes God grumpy or the thing that doesn't please God is that they don't actually have trust and faith and belief in him. They're actually trusting and believing in everything else. At the end of the day, the thing that ultimately pleases God is when we put the full weight of our confidence and trust and faith in what his son has done 
and in his grace, but also in all areas of, his, uh, of, of our life, what God is calling to, uh, us to do is to put our faith and trust and confidence in him. So these are the people that play the role, look the part, but nevertheless, God is not pleased because their heart is so far from God. Verse 6. Now these things took place as an example for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. We should know the, the reason Paul is communicating this, the reason the Word of God is communicating is it tells us right here, this is an example for us to remember, to reflect on, and to learn that we would not desire evil as they did. That's where things start. Things start with desire. James says this. James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We see this in the garden, that Eve was tempted and led away by what? By her desire. And so here, here's just a question for you guys. What, what do you desire? What, what you desire teaches a lot about where your heart is at. The, 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 the thing you think about the most, the thing you want the most, that teaches a ton about where your idols are at and ultimately what you want in life. And as we give way to our desires, that's what leads us into sin and that's what leads us into more and more and more sin. We say that, that oftentimes the door creeps open before it swings wide open and that's what happens is we give way to these desires that grow. And if you notice in the midst of the pandemic, whenever... It, everything hit. The junk food aisle was stocked full, but if you went for the meat and, and things of substance, it wasn't there. And ultimately in the Christian life that, 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 that we are going to feed something. But the reality is, is what are we feeding? Are we spending time in the word? Are we spending time in prayer? What are the things that we're feeding? If not, the other desires will grow. Something is going to grow in us. The question is, is what are we feeding ourselves? What is our substance and, and, and what is going to produce growth? And that's where he's taken them. He's like, we can see what happened to them, as we read on, verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. What is this? Idolatry, as described by Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, is this. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. I'll say that again. Whatever your heart clings to and relies upon, that is your God. Trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and idol. So in a sense, what do you place your confidence in? What do you look to the most? Is it getting married? Is it having a family? Is it a degree? What is your confidence? Is it success in this world? Is it proving your family wrong that you can be successful? What do you place your confidence in? Israel's idol that Paul has taken them to here was a golden calf. And we might say that's utterly ridiculous to make a golden calf out of gold and then sit around and sing to it and worship it and stuff like that. But here's the reality is there's plenty of things in our life that we make idols of, maybe not figures that we worship and give our hearts to. And, and here's, here, here's the other reality is that we try to squeeze everything out of our idols that we possibly can until they can't produce what we expect them to produce for us that only God in and of himself can, can produce for us. And I see this time and time again with people that get married and people that want kids is it's always the next thing. And I'm going to be super blunt and, and super transparent with you guys and just say this is that if, if our com, uh, contentment is not found in Christ, then we are constantly going to find ourselves discontent. And let me use some examples personally, like I said, to shock you guys, is that all I wanted when we lived in Reno, Nevada was to be in Oregon. Couldn't stand Reno. I just was just grumbled about Reno constantly. Didn't like it. It was just ugly. <laughs> I didn't like it. I, I hated Reno. So my wife got to hear about this over and over and, and, and over again. And so my heart was constantly complaining. And then I thought, man, all I need to do is I need to get married. 
I need to get married and I need to have a wife. Then I will find some contentment. And then if I move to, to Oregon, then, then I'll have some contentment. And then if we have a family, and here's the reality. And, and this is no knock to my wife. I'm not telling you guys anything that she doesn't already know. Move to Oregon and it didn't satisfy me. Get married. And, 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 and here's the, the, uh, the sobering thoughts. Is when you're married, you realize that the person you are with cannot satisfy you, though that's the thing you were thinking about for so long. My wife and I have had these really just honest conversations. I'm like, have you ever had the thought of me dying and that life would be easier? And she's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, I've had that thought too. And, and you, you, you can laugh and pretend like you never have, but if you've been married long enough, you've probably had that thought. We were just having this thought, uh, this conversation the other day. So I say we're, we're called to be like Adam and Eve and just real and raw and transparent with, with, with our spouses. But we're having these conversations and we're like, man, but we thought this was going to be the thing, and, and, and Israel was always the next thing. And, and this is not actually what freedom is, but this is what the Corinthians are believing freedom is. And so this is what Paul is taking them to, is these are the things you're worshiping. These are your idols in your life. And so the question is for you guys, what is your idol, and what is the thing you're placing your trust and confidence in? Let's keep reading. Verse 8. He's going to tell us three forms of idolatry. Two of the three are, are basically the same thing. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. You can read about this in Numbers 25. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Numbers 21, you guys know the story, raised up the bronze serpents. And if you looked at it, you could be healed. That points to Christ being lifted up on the cross. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Numbers 14. Paul gives these three examples of what happened to the Israelites. Here's what happened. Sexual immorality. They had to find what sex was supposed to be based upon the world standards. And I think that's where liberal theology is taking us now, is to just say, it's your body, do whatever you want with it, express yourself freely. And I, I, I believe before too long there's going to be a resurgence where people come back and say, what does God's word actually say about sex and about marriage? Because what we're trying is not working. And so what his word says is it's, it's reserved for a covenant. But what Israel was doing is they were linking food and they were linking idol worship to, uh, to, uh, to sex. And, and, and so what would actually happen is we can read about this in Numbers, is they would gather around, worship idols, sing and dance, and then they would participate in sexual immorality. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and drank and bowed down to their gods. Numbers 25, 1 and 2. Also in Exodus, we see when they built the golden calf, what were they doing? They were rising up to sing and dance around it, and they were worshiping it. So here's what's going on, is there's these multiple idols that are very present in Corinth, and one of them is sexual immorality. And so Paul is saying, it's not just enough to say, I believe in God. When you remember this, when you put your trust and faith in what Christ has done, then you are empowered by the spirit to live a life of morality. It's not, a just, uh, it's not enough just to say, well, I believe in God and I can live uh, however I want. The heart that has been transformed by the grace of God lives consistently with the grace that God has given us. And so that's what he's calling them to do. But next he's saying, grumbling and complaining. If you, I could, I could spit out so many Bible verses from the Old Testament where you see God's, again, in a sense, we'll call it grumpiness, where, where uh, it, it is all driven from the people just constantly complaining and, and moaning and groaning and saying it's not enough. At the core of this is a heart of discontentment. Philippians tells us to, to, to do all things without complaining. That actually complaining flows from a heart that is saying, I'm discontent. Um, I don't believe, God, that you can be enough. 
from the rock flowed living water, but also if you read Psalm 81, from the rock flowed honey too. So God made honey to flow from the rock, meaning that Christ is also sweet. And so not only can uh, did Jesus do enough, but he is enough. He's enough to satisfy us. So all the complaining and grumbling that comes from us is from a heart that's discontent. Went camping last week. I was a curmudgeon. I complained almost the entire time. We thought it was supposed to be two miles. We ended up hiking five miles uphill with our children. I was done by like two miles in and I was just grumbling and complaining the entire time. I was just angry at the world. And I'm like, this is, this is a free note for parents, but with the pandemic going on, one of the benefits is, is that you could tell your kids stuff like, if you don't stop acting this way, then I'm gonna have uh, Christmas canceled this year because everything else is getting canceled or the fair or whatever else. And then they actually think you have the power to do that when it happens. So just saying free, free, free parenting tip, but we, we were out there just, I was just frustrated and I told my wife, I'm sorry, I, I complained and I was just grumbling the whole time, why? Because I'm discontent. There's always something better. It should look like this. It, it, it should have gone like this. And that's where the Israelites found themselves. That's where many of us find ourselves, with the level of discontentment. In all reality, there are things, where, whatever's going on in life, that we can praise, that we can give thanks to God. Today that we have sunshine, that we have air for our family, we, we, we have healthy kids. There is so much that we can be thankful for. But in Philippians 4.8, Paul says, you have to actually think about these things, the things that are praiseworthy. You have to give thanks for them, the things that are uh, of excellence. Our, 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 uh, our natural pro proclivity is to think about the things that, that, that we don't have, find ourselves discontent versus all that we do have, right? In the midst of a pandemic. I know how difficult it is parents who have little ones who aren't sending their kids back to school and are, and are gonna be homeschooling this fall, right? In the midst of these things, we, we, we have to find things we can be thankful for. For instance, homeschool shopping. Now you should only, <laughs> you only have to buy beanies or hats or scarves since no one can see your kids from the neck down. So that's something you could be thankful for in the midst of the, the, the pandemic. But on a serious note, there are always things going on that we could find, our, our, uh, that we could find discontentment in or we could find a, a level of gratefulness in, and that's what he's calling them to. C.S. Lewis says this well. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no, uh, uh, no you left to criticize, the mood or even to enjoy, but the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us hell in each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. What is he saying in the great divorce? He's saying there's things that grow inside of us. Constantly complaining. I'm not saying you can't be real or raw or transparent. The Bible is that through and through. We can tell people when we're having rough days. We can share those things. We should share those things. But if the overall consistent theme of our life is complaining and grumbling, moaning and groaning, then are we finding a contentment in Christ and are we actually free? Typically, we complain about things that we don't have selfishly and things we want. And what Paul is drawing them to is to say that is actually not freedom. Freedom is found when you find your full contentment in, in all that you have in Christ. Let's keep moving on. Now these things, verse 11, happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Just very quickly. Again, this is our instruction to remember, to believe, but now to live. The end of the ages of believe firmly is that from the time that Christ resurrected until the time Christ comes again, these are the ends of the ages. Verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed unless he fall. If you are not putting any thought into this for your own life, 
where there's grumbling, where there's discontentment, what your idols are, anything like that. If you're not willing to remember, reflect, or anything like that, then take heed unless you fall. If you're only listening to the person to your left or right. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. What's going on? To, to wrap up here is Paul draws them to again that we're called to remember, that we're called to trust, and that we're called to live. We remember what happened to Israel, but we also, the most defining thing that we're called to remember as Christians is what, is what Christ has done and accomplished and finished for us. And then we are called to put the entire weight of our lives in confidence in what Christ has done, not what we can do, and also in who Christ can be. And that means living a life not constantly moaning, groaning, complaining, or walking in sexual immorality. We live that way, empowered by the Spirit. And then he ends with this, is that God's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can handle. This verse is taken out of context uh, oftentimes when people say, don't worry, God will never give you more than he can handle. I think that's garbage, because God will absolutely give you way more than you can handle, because by doing that, then you can only put your trust and faith and confidence in Christ. So actually what is being communicated here is that when temptation comes or trials come, that God's going to give you a way of escape. The way of escape he's talking about is a way that we won't actually fall into sin. Through every trial and every test, we can actually glorify God. You see this because at the end of 13, he says that you may endure it. It doesn't say there's a way around it. It actually says that whatever trial or test comes your way in life, he will give you an escape. The escape that he's provided for us is contentment, and it is the everything found in Jesus Christ. And then through that, we can endure things because we understand that, that our, ultimately need, our ultimate need is to be reconciled to God. He will never forsake us. He will never abandon us. He will never leave us in the midst of whatever is going on in your life right now. For Tani, who's moving, for people that are going through so much stuff, the, 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 the ultimate promise is that God will never leave, abandon, or forsake us. And so at the end in verse 13, notice that, that Paul draws us to, to, to this. It is God who is faithful. God is faithful. And if we remember something today, that's what Paul is saying at the end of verse 13. Uh, God is faithful. God is faithful. Our confidence is not to draw upon our faithfulness. Our confidence is to remember that God is faithful. God faithfully looks to and remembers the, the, the perfect work that his son accomplished and finished for our behalf. What we should do is also look to Christ, to the work that he's finished on our behalf. But also know this, that in the midst of temptation, Jesus never gave in. When we walk against the wind, as Dane Ortland says, typically we lay down after 10 minutes of walking. Jesus walked against the wind his entire life. Why? He did that for our behalf. He never once gave in to temptation. He knows it on a level that we never will. And he walked out perfect, faithful obedience to God on our behalf. And so what God does is reminds us of this, that all of God's promises find their yes in him, 2 Corinthians 1.20. And today I, I, I pray and hope for our community that we'd remember all that God has done, that he's faithful, that he's finished in Christ, that we'd place the full weight of our confidence in him and that we would live faithfully and freely out of who we are now in Christ not as the world would tell us but as Christ through his word tells us let's pray father we thank you so much that we're given stories after after stories of the way humanity has sought everything else in this world for pleasure but ultimately we're reminded that it's you that gives us all the pleasure that we need in Christ. It's you that has fulfilled everything in Jesus. As we take this meal together as saints, I pray that it's a celebration of what Christ has done and the ultimate exodus and redemption that you've provided. We pray all this in Jesus' name.
Amen.